It's my great joy this morning to invite you to open your copy of God's perfect and precious Word to Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. We're going to begin our time there, and then we're going to look a little bit in the Gospel of Matthew this morning. I want to talk to you about baptism, a sign of Christ's kingdom. Next week, we start a new series called Essentials that we're looking forward to, but uh, I wanted to take one of these in-between sermons and talk about baptism. We are blessed as a congregation to baptize a lot, and it's always important for us to continue to shape and form our minds and our thinking about exactly what we're doing when we gather in the baptistry and plunge someone under the water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, I'll read and pray for God's mercy. Please stand in reverence for the reading of God's perfect and precious Word. Hear it knowing that the Word has the authority of the very breath of God upon it. All Scripture is God-breathed, Paul tells us. Romans 6, beginning in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you, or it's plural, do y'all not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you, or y'all also, must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Oh Lord, there is so much in these verses that makes much of Jesus and the Gospel. Lord, help us to see at least a portion of it today. Help us to understand the amazing blessing that we have that we see so consistently this sign of the kingdom called baptism. And help us to understand it in a way that honors and glorifies You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Dr. Prince, don't you think that it would be practical to wait until you have a lot of people to, to baptize people in the church? I teach pastoral ministry at the seminary, and when we were talking about baptism, that was one of the questions that I got one time. And I said, what do you mean? Why? Why would you wait? And he said, well, you know, it's, 
it's kind of inconvenient. After all, it's just a symbol. I said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to try that with your wife. This is just my wife. What if I were to say, I were to meet you, you're visiting today, and Judy and I walk up and I say, hey, I'm David and this is just my wife. Now, she is my wife, but she's not just a anything. Baptism is a symbol, but it's not just a anything. Any more than the Bible is just a book. Any more than we would say the gospel is just a story. No, baptism is far more than just a symbol. And I said, inconvenient? I said, let me tell you just how inconvenient baptism is. I said, in our congregation where I pastor, there was a lady who was in the baptistry and told us she wanted to film it to send it to her family because her family said, if you are baptized, we will disown you. And with tears in her eyes, she said, Mother and Father, I love you. I know you've said you'll disown me for doing that, and I don't want you to. I will always love you no matter what you do. But I am not making a mistake. I am making the best decision of my life. That's what she said right there. And she pled for them to believe in Christ. Well, yeah, that's inconvenient. But true. Unless you're willing to leave father and mother, brother and sister, you cannot be my disciples. Yeah, baptism signifies that. One time I was preaching in a very rural area of Brazil, and a lady came to faith in Christ, and her husband was involved in this weird kind of cult, and she said she wanted to be baptized during uh, the stretch that we were there in the church that I was, was helping. And the pastor said, you know your husband will be angry, and there's no telling what he will do. And she said, I want to be baptized anyway as a testimony to him. I will endure his anger for the Lord Jesus, and maybe he will believe. And she was baptized and showed up a few days later and he had beaten her. And she said, I do not regret this beating if I am willing to suffer for Jesus. Maybe he will trust in Christ. Yeah, it's, it's inconvenient. It's so inconvenient that people have given their lives for it down through the ages. It's so inconvenient that people have had their family forsake them to do it. It is biblically the way you publicly say, I identify with Christ and I will accept the consequences of doing so. So much so that the word witness, martus, is the word that we started to associate with being willing to die for your faith. Because so many who were publicly baptized were persecuted for their testimony of faith in baptism. It's very interesting that God did not choose a symbol that we can do off in a corner somewhere, but it is sort of clumsy. We have to have a big enough body of water. We plunge somebody under. In a sense, it's weird. Until you know what it signifies. And then you would give everything for it. 
Yeah, it's definitely inconvenient. And just think about how blessed we are as a congregation. Those waters in that baptistry have have moved for all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of social classes and all kinds of socioeconomic classes and all kinds of ages for people from the United States and Peru and China and Nepal and Kazakhstan and Mexico and Kurdistan and Russia, just to name some. We have seen the power that the Gospel has to transform lives and bring people together through the blood of Christ, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ in ways that nothing else could do. And often our Baptist forefathers were killed by drowning to say, oh, you're so much into baptism, immersion. Take this. And yet they kept doing it. Inconvenient. But with such an amazing biblical heritage and such an amazing heritage that we've had bestowed upon us, I am amazed at how so many congregations treat baptism in such a non-important way these days. I got a flyer here at the church one time and it said, hey, we're having a huge carnival and we're baptizing people. If you want any of your people to come to be baptized at the carnival, uh, just sign them up and we'll baptize them. Cotton candy, baptism. There's something not right about that. We will baptize your church members? Something's not right about that. It's odd. It's very common for churches to see baptism as sort of awkward and inconvenient. Many are doing it. I had somebody say, well, we do it with the pre-service time, before the service. Some churches are doing it in a separate room with just friends and family, and yet none of that identifies what is going on in baptism biblically. I, I thought about it one day and I figured out many people treat baptism like it's a mascot. Think about that for a second. You know, I listen to sports talk radio. I haven't heard anybody associated with spring football saying, you know, I wonder how Wildcat is doing. I wonder if Wildcat, the mascot for Kentucky, is getting his workouts in. I wonder what his 40 time is. I, I, I wonder how Wildcat's training is going. Why don't they say that? Because they know that Wildcat doesn't really have anything to do with winning games. Wildcat is not in the game. Wildcat is a symbol, an identifier, something that helps us know, oh yeah, that's Kentucky, and that's a neat thing, and and that's, that's something we associate with the school that we cheer for. But it's not in the heat of battle. That's how many people think about baptism. It's neat. It's something that identifies us. But it's not really in the heat of battle. Well, I want you to know this this morning. Baptism is a sign of Christ's gospel of the kingdom, not a mascot. We're in the book of Romans. In the book of Romans, Paul wrote on his third missionary journey, it's missionary theology empowering the church to take the gospel to everyone, Jew and Gentile, 
And he says at the very beginning of the book in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. And then he goes on to explain the gospel. And, and the whole first section is about the reality of our sin and that all of us are guilty before God. And there is none righteous, no, not one. And the righteousness we need, he goes on to explain, is found only in Christ. It's in Christ that we can be credited His righteousness and have right standing before God. Justification. To be declared righteous in Christ. And so he goes through great pains to, to argue this gospel that he's not ashamed of that energizes the church to take the gospel to the whole world. But the gospel is always being defined against two errors on opposite sides. One of those errors is the error of legalism. And that is avoiding the gospel by acting as though it's Jesus plus a ladder of works that I do that contribute to my salvation. And Paul is saying the gospel is not legalism. For one example, in chapter 3, verse 20, he says this, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Oh, the, no, the law has a role in the gospel to show you your need of the gospel. But by the works of the law, no human being will be declared righteous. In fact, it's the opposite. You're declared guilty. The gospel comes and gives you the righteousness that you can't have on your own. But there's another error that the gospel is always being defined in relation to. It's not the error of legalism. The law is a part of me earning salvation. It's the error of thinking that since I'm saved in Christ, forget about the law. The fancy word antinomianism, against the law. Look with me at chapter 5, verse 20 and 21, right before the section that we're considering. Paul says, Now the law came to increase the trespass. Now, what does that mean? That means that when the law comes and tells you what righteousness is, then you see the ways in which you're guilty of violating the law. So it increases our understanding of our sins. The law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also may reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so then those who don't understand the gospel tend to say something like this. Well, well, if, if, if where sin increases, grace abounds all the more, then maybe we should just go on sinning to make more of grace. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You see, let's just increase the sin to increase the grace. We're not saved by the law, so the law doesn't matter. Let's continue to sin so grace can be seen more fully. Now, the issue is that somebody who makes an argument like that shows they haven't even begun to understand the gospel. Look at where Paul goes in verse 2. By no means... We could translate this, never. How can you who died to sin still live in it? Do y'all not know 
that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, beginning in verse 3. Now notice what he does here. Romans is about the gospel. Romans has to clarify the gospel against the errors that always crop up and still do today of legalism and just abandoning the law of God. And Paul says, okay, I want to make that really clear. For theological clarity, I'll bring up baptism. Do you see that? For theological clarity. So they will understand that the picture in baptism, the symbol that is a symbolic sign that points back says something about now and points to the future is so powerful that it can be a part of clarifying our theology. Now, he he says that the person who is apart from Christ in Romans is in bondage and slaves to sin. The gospel that doesn't say you can be righteous and earn it, but grace saves you, frees you from the bonds to sin. How can he who died to sin still live in it? That's not thinking about the gospel in the way the gospel is explained in the Bible. You're liberated. You're freed. He'll he'll make more of that in a bit. But look with me at verse 3. Do you all know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His." Now let's think about this for a moment. What are the what are the things that he says baptism is signifying here? Baptism is signifying union with Christ. The the, the word baptize, baptize means to immerse, to put completely under, to plunge under. It, baptism is not by immersion, baptism is immersion. That's what the word means. Have you ever noticed nobody's come ever walked up to you and said you know, what do you think is the mode of circumcision? Why do you think they've never said that? Because circumcision is the cutting of the flesh, and we'll leave it at that. It's what it is. Baptism is immersion. And it is immersion that symbolizes that the person is in union with Christ. Christ lived a righteous life. Christ was crucified not for His sins, but for the sins of those who would believe in Him. Christ was raised from the dead that the people who put their faith in Him might be justified or declared righteous. So through faith in Christ, we're united with Christ. And united with Him, we are buried with Him. Plunged under the water signifying a burial. We are dead with Him, dead to any hope or trust or confidence in ourselves, and we are raised from the dead with Him. Resurrection, newness of life here and now. 
spiritual resurrection here and now. But that's not all he says. He says far more than that. He ties it, as we'll see in a moment, to bodily resurrection in the end. See, water in the Bible symbolizes judgment and chaos. Sin came into the world in in incredible ways and, and God sent a flood on the old creation. And He cleansed the old creation through a flood that signified His wrath at sin. In the new creation, the new covenant, baptism is that symbol. We still use water in this way. We say, I feel like I'm drowning. I feel like I'm, I'm almost up to my neck. I, I feel like I'm going to drown. Baptism uh, symbolizes judgment. Judgment on sin. But our baptism symbolizes that Christ is the one who was judged for our sin. We are united to Him. I had somebody tell me one time, you know, I don't want to be baptized. I'm kind of heavy. It'll be awkward. It's way more awkward than you think. You are saying, I deserve to die eternally. And I'm going to publicly symbolize that. And my only hope is bound up in Christ. The passage I read earlier from Mark 10, Jesus says, I have a baptism to undergo. I have judgment to undergo. And then He is raised. Baptism symbolizes the judgment that we deserve that Christ underwent for us. And we are raised because we are saying that Christ is raised for us. Baptism is a funeral. But it's a resurrection immediately. I tend to tell people that I'm going to baptize. You know, when I put you under the water, when I immerse you, when I baptize you, What happens if I just hold you under the water and don't let you back up? You die. That's the whole point. You are at the mercy of another. Now, I'm going to let you back up. And I'm not the one whose mercy you're at. But on behalf of the congregation, I'm symbolizing that. Your hope is in the hands of another. And that hope has been declared because He died for you. He was raised for you. You see, baptism is saying that the old arrangement is over. Death being held over you, Satan's great weapon, Satan's great threat. Well, you've died in Christ and you're alive again. And the grave in this world will lead you to eternal life. The eternal life you have now that you will know in a unique way uh, when you are absent from the body and present with the Lord. And in a more unique way when He consummates His kingdom, His body is reunited with Spirit forever and ever. The person who is baptized says, I am guilty. I am agreeing with God about my guilt. We say, oh, you want to hold judgment over my head? I've already been through the judgment in Christ. And I am forgiven. Protestant reformer Martin Luther says, when the devil throws up our sins to us, declares that we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak thus. I admit I deserve death and hell. What of it? 
Does that mean I'd be sentenced to death in hell? By no means. I know the one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf, Jesus Christ, and he is a savior, not a devil like you. You are a tyrant and have no right over me. Jesus, a merciful Savior, has right over me. That's the new arrangement. That's what's signified in the baptistry. Now, now what I want you to see is this, this newness of life that we walk in is immediate, but notice what verse 5 does. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His. Now, the verb there is what's called perfect tense. just means Past completed action with lingering results. I have died with Christ. But then it goes on, the parallel is this. We shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. How was Christ raised? Literally bodily from the dead. The tense here is future tense. This is not talking about the resurrection that's immediate, the spiritual resurrection that we can say is the newness of life that we experience immediately. He's saying that your baptism, when you're lifted out of the water, signifies not just something about this moment, but if you are genuinely in Christ, something about eternity. You will be raised in the last day just as Christ was raised, literally and bodily from the dead, to be with Him forever. That's so often ignored. We act as though baptism is just sort of a personal thing that we're saying something about this moment. No, baptism is about the gospel from beginning to end. It's about the gospel promise in the beginning that we experience in the presence, that we experience the already of in the present, but that the not yet of is yet to be fulfilled. We will have a resurrection in the future like His, literally bodily. It's not just saying something about today. I've often said, you know, if, if you said, you know, Paul, what you're teaching here in Romans, would it be acceptable to say that what you're teaching here is that the water saves you? He would say, no, that's ridiculous. That's the opposite. I'm going to great pains to say salvation is by grace alone. Through faith alone, in Christ alone. Okay, okay, Paul. Would it be fair to say what you're saying here in Romans is just something about salvation in the moment and that a believer may be saved right now, but we're not saying anything about a month from now, a year from now, ten years from now. He equally would say, absolutely not. We are saying that the believer will be raised with a resurrection like His in the future when He consummates His kingdom. Look with me at verses 6-11. through 11. We know that our old self, or it could be translated old man, that's the contrast in chapter 5 between the man who brought sin and death to the world, Adam, and the New Adam, the one man, it says in verse 15 of chapter 5, the one man, Jesus Christ, who brought the free gift of salvation. Verse 6, we know that our old self, our old man, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with Him. 
we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Therefore, it no longer has dominion over the believer. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. He paid the debt. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you or y'all also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now notice what he's doing here. I've baptism pictures, I've been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Or Galatians 3.27, for as many of you as, as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Put on his righteousness. No longer are you slaves to sin. Now understand what this means. To be dead to sin does not mean that you no longer sin. To be dead to sin does not mean that you no longer struggle with sin. You will in this fallen world. What it does mean is the power of sin is broken in your life. You have the power to obey God, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, forgiven by the grace of God, adopted by the Father, you have the power. You were once, it describes in Romans, in bondage to sin, slaves to sin. You had no power over it. Once you are forgiven and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the power is broken. And you still struggle, but you're being changed. You're being sanctified. It no longer has authority over you. And so baptism is signifying just that. It's embracing the sign of the kingdom. Uh, Andrew Fuller, one of my great heroes, said, In the Bible, the rejection of the sign, talking about baptism, is justly construed as a rejection of the one signified. And it's why the Bible can talk about a believer and being baptized in the same language. It's not that baptism makes you a believer, but that believers are baptized. That's normative in the Bible. Baptism is not a mascot. But secondly... Baptism is a congregational act of gospel witness. Hear me, not just an individual testimony. We tend to think of baptism as just something that someone is saying. But there is a reason they're saying it in the church. The ordinance of baptism is given to the church. All of the other members of the church have borne witness to their faith in baptism. They have said, this is the gospel we believe. And so they are receiving another voice to the gospel chorus of the congregation. They are not hearing a solo. They are hearing an addition to the gospel choir that the church is. Now, we won't spend a lot of time on this, but I want you to notice in verse 3. Do y'all know? All of us. Verse 4. We were. We too. Verse 6. We know so that we would. Verse 8, we have died. We also live. Verse 9, we know. Verse uh, uh, 11, so y'all must consider. I think I skipped verse 5. We have been. Do you notice the plural language? When he's talking about baptism and what baptism is to do in the life of a people, it's what we have experienced, what we have, what we are saying in a baptism. The congregation are those who have been baptized. The New Testament knows nothing of unbaptized believers. 
or of baptized unbelievers. Knows nothing of that. There are certainly people who baptize who are not believers, but it is not because the church is endorsing such. Notice what it says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Notice where it puts baptism in the ones category. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God the Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. Now, if you're put in a list with one faith, one hope, one Spirit, one Lord, one God and Father over all, one baptism. Now, you certainly cannot be saying anything that is just a symbol, just a mascot, or just individual. It is the testimony of the one body that has the authority to administer the one baptism. The one who baptizes represents the congregation, not themselves. When I or whoever else it is is leading the baptism, we are leading the baptism on behalf of the congregation. The congregation are not spectators in baptism, they are participants They are saying, this is the gospel we believe. What is signified in that water is what we have signified and what we believe. So the one being baptized is adding their voice to the gospel witness of that congregation. This is the gospel we believe. My baptism publicly testifies to what we believe about the gospel. It's a church ordinance. It's not private and personal. It is public and congregational. And it's so public that it's a declaration to even the principalities and powers and Satan himself. You are a defeated foe. Satan trembles when gospel churches baptize. It's not an individual testimony. That's the reason you can't baptize yourself. I knew a young guy who became a Christian. He was all fired up about it. So he went out in the Pacific Ocean and he baptized himself. And by the way, he was trying to obey Jesus. That's a good thing. And then he learned what the Bible says about baptism. He said, I never baptized. I've never been baptized. I didn't have the authority to go do that. This is given to the church. It's to be in a community. I'm adding my voice. And so he was biblically baptized. But you get this all, all the time. If, if baptism wasn't a congregational command, a congregational ordinance, You wouldn't have to do it in the context of the church. You just do it wherever you are. You could baptize yourself. But you can't. So in baptism, it matters that the individual believes certain things about the gospel. But it also matters that the church does as well. Just think about somebody on TV and they're they're listening to a sermon on TV from a great preacher and they say, oh, I believe this. I want to put my faith in Jesus Christ. They walk outside and across the street, there's the... The, the temple of the Latter-day Saints, Mormon. They go in there and they say, I want to be baptized. And guess what? If you uh, go to a Mormon uh, congregation, you'll be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Immersed. But guess what? They teach salvation by works and all kinds of other unbiblical things too. So that's not a baptism. Because the church does not hold to the gospel to have the authority to baptize. The gospel displays the death, burial, and resurrection 
of Jesus Christ. The church is declaring that gospel and they're bringing people into that testimony. You see, we have to understand, baptism is not just something we do. Baptism helps declare who we are. It's a sign of Christ's kingdom. Finally, I want you to see, and we're going to flip back to the Gospel of Matthew. You don't have to turn there. I'll walk you through this quickly. But baptism is a declaration of the Lordship of Christ, not just a symbol. You remember when Jesus was baptized? John had been baptizing as a baptism of repentance, and he's saying things like, you brood of vipers, come to be baptized. And then Jesus, the one that uh, John came to point to as the Messiah, came and it says in Matthew 3.13, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? He's having the right reaction. This is a baptism for a brood of vipers. Jesus, you are the one who came to save this brood of vipers. This doesn't make any sense. Notice what Jesus says in Matthew 3.15. But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized immediately, he went up from the water, and the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Father, Son, Holy Spirit participating in this to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? It means that Jesus himself took on a dramatic representation of not what he needed, but what he came to do. Death, burial, and resurrection. If the sinless Son of God was willing to be identified with sinners and snakes like us, why would we not be willing to follow Him in obedience to what He has commanded us to do to bear testimony that His death, burial, and resurrection did indeed fulfill all righteousness? In Him, the Father is well pleased. In Him, the Spirit rests. This is a declaration to even all the principalities and powers. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, would say, you know, a lot of people say a lot of things about baptism, but I want to challenge my infant baptizing friends to, to do this. I know the word baptize means to immerse, so I translate it when I read it. I challenge them to do the same thing with sprinkling. He said, try this for Matthew 3, 6. And they were sprinkled by him in the river Jordan. Matthew 3, 16. When Jesus was sprinkled, immediately he went up from the water. Spurgeon said, doesn't work. Because baptism is immersed. And when they were immersed by him in the river Jordan. When Jesus was immersed, immediately he went up from the water. Now I also want you to think about this. So Jesus is baptized to fulfill all righteousness, to declare that he came to live a life die a death, be buried, and resurrected. In Matthew 16, there's this pivotal transition point in the book. And in Matthew 16, he keeps saying that he is going to go and die. And there's a sense in which they're pushing back from that. And he says that the way the gospel is going to advance is he's going to go to Jerusalem and die and be raised, and then they are to take up their cross and follow him. 
In one section in that, uh, he's saying, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, Elijah and Jeremiah are one of the prophets. But then Peter comes and says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he says, that was declared to you from above. And he says, based on this confession, that he grants the keys of the kingdom, the authority of the kingdom, to the church. In His death and resurrection, they are to take up their cross and follow Him. And they bear His authority in as much as they say what He says. And then you get to Matthew 18. And it talks about church discipline. And a brother sinning against you. And you go to him and you plead with him to repent. If he doesn't repent, you go to him again. And if he doesn't repent, you, you, you take it to the church. And ultimately, you're willing to put him outside of the fellowship. Now, now that, that's where it says where two or three are gathered in my name. By the way, that's about church discipline. Where two or three are gathered in my name, meaning acting according to what I have said, my authority is among them. They act on my behalf. Now, church discipline is not the permission to do whatever we want. If you come up, came up to me and said, you know, look at pastor up there today. He's not wearing a coat. Real preachers should wear coats. Whenever I wear a suit, some of you come up and say, you look real nice today, pastor. In other words, you're saying, we want you to wear a suit. And uh, I don't care. And you say, well, well, you need to wear a coat. And if you don't wear a coat, we're going to discipline you. And I'm going to laugh at you. Because you don't have the authority to do that. You don't have the biblical authority to do it. But if you catch me committing adultery and with a drunken anger problem and you confront me and said we are going to discipline you, you have the authority to do that and the responsibility to do it. And Christ will bless your decision. If you fire me for not wearing a coat, you will be in rebellion to Christ and you'll answer to Him for that. See, the keys of the kingdom, the authority the church wields is only in as much as the church acts in accordance to what He commanded. Which takes us to the end of the book. Matthew 28. Now notice that Jesus' ministry begins with Him being baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Him saying that He came for death, burial, and resurrection. The Gospel of Matthew ends with the risen Christ coming and commanding His church to do what? To go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that is something that has to do with the mission of Jesus and the authority of Christ that He's given us. It is the decoration in the world of the triumphant march of the Gospel. You know, there's a tendency of some people to say, well, you know, baptism, it's just a symbol. It's not essential. Here's what Charles Haddon Spurgeon said. What do you mean by not essential? Well, they say, I mean, I can be saved without being baptized. Will you dare say that wicked sentence over again? I mean that I can be saved without being baptized. You mean creature. So you will do nothing that Christ commands if you can be saved without doing it? You are hardly worth saving. A man who always wants to be paid for what he does, whose one idea of religion is that he will do what is only essential for his own salvation, only cares to save his own skin. Christ may go where he likes. 
Clearly, you are no servant of His. You need to be saved from such a disreputable, miserable state of mind, and may the Lord save you. Oftentimes, I believe this little matter of believer's baptism is a test of sincerity of our profession, of love to Him. It becomes essential when the risen Christ commands it. It is in this way that baptism, if not essential to your salvation, which it's not, is essential to your obedience to Christ. Let's look at Matthew 18, 28, uh, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. The Lordship of Christ in heaven and earth. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them, this is the church, to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And guess what? In the book of Acts, we find them doing just that. And the gospel going throughout the world and people being baptized in obedience to Christ. But notice that you only have the authority to baptize disciples. That is, believers. Baptism is to fulfill... uh, Jesus was baptized to fulfill all righteousness... And baptizing those who are not in Christ is declaring something that is not true. Baptism is a sign of union with Christ, so it's a sign only for those who have union in Christ. To be in the church, but not in Christ, is to reverse redemptive history. It's to go backwards. The Old Covenant, there was an ethnic people with a physical birth, who had an outer sign of circumcision, some of whom believed the gospel message and some of who were unfaithful. But it was preparing for the new covenant where there's a people of the word and spirit who all know me, it says about the new covenant, who've experienced the new birth, have a circumcision of the heart, and their obedience is in one faithful Jew who fulfilled the covenant promises named Jesus. And in him, they are counted as obedient to the covenant. Ezekiel 36 says that the new covenant will be, you will have a new heart and a new spirit within you. We must not ignore the newness of the new covenant. And the newness of the new covenant is Jesus. And those who take up the sign of the kingdom of baptism are those who are followers of Jesus. We do not have the authority to do what the Scripture has not given us the authority to do. Uh, we baptize. We baptize because Christ is King. Because the Gospel is true. Because the King commanded us to do it. And it signifies the Gospel that is true. We baptize because Christ died and rose for His church. And our only hope is bound up in Him. We baptize also because it is gloriously unsophisticated and humbling. Doesn't matter who you are. You can't buy your way out of the baptistry in a biblically faithful church. Oh, I don't want to get in there and get wet and have you say this. I just don't want to do that. Let me give a large donation and so I can skip that part. Doesn't work that way. At least not in a biblically faithful church. You're rich. You've got to humble yourself to say that you deserve death. And your only true life is found in Jesus. You're poor. 
same. You're black, same. White, same. Anywhere in the world, same. Educated, same. Uneducated, same. It's supposed to be humbling and unsophisticated. And I am so amazed at the confidence that so many congregations have in tech and programming and glitz and glamour while ignoring the powerful means that God has given. No glitz, no glamour, no tech can do what is done in there. As Satan trembles as the gospel is signified. As the church obeys Jesus under His authority, celebrates the triumphant march of the gospel. I always tell people, we have everybody give a testimony that's being baptized. Baptism is a testimony, but historically, down to the very beginning of the church, uh, Jesus is Lord in the New Testament is the key uh, declaration. And a book called the Didache, right after the Apostles, uh, they gave testimonies to declare the Lordship of Christ and, and, and their faith in Him in the baptistry. And one of the things that God has done to grow this church is those testimonies in that baptistry. I tell people, I say, you're probably nervous about your testimony. Yeah. I said, and you think that that's going to hurt your testimony. It's not. People listen on the edge of their seat because you're not a professional speaker. You're just somebody who loves Jesus. And you're speaking from your gut and your heart. And that matters. The grittiness, the guttiness of standing before people. Being plunged under the water in obedience to Christ. Declaring your love and faith for Him. Inconvenient? I pray for the year we baptize all 52 Sundays. I would love to be in that water every single day weak. It's glorious. It's powerful. I did a thing in my pastoral ministry class. I won't do it in here, but I say, I want, you to, I, I want to mark for you the congregation I serve in the way God has transformed it through the baptistry. And I tell a story about something that was said in the baptistry or an incredible baptism and a powerful testimony and say, you know, this was helped shape here. I can, I can mark what God has done in our church through the testimonies that have been given in that baptistry. We will never, ever treat it like a mascot. We will always understand that we all participate every time somebody's being baptized. And no, it's a symbol. But we will never say it's just a symbol. It's the sign of the kingdom of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much. I, I, my mind is racing. With the faces in this room, you have given powerful testimonies in that baptistry. And every testimony in that baptistry has been powerful. Because there's nothing more powerful than folks who love Jesus saying so and obeying him. And Lord, I pray that those waters continue to move. And I pray, Lord, that we do not minimize one of the things that you have said is a direct expression of your authority. Lord, when we baptize, we say to Satan and the demonic host, 
you are already defeated and your days are numbered when your defeat will be sealed for all eternity. Jesus Christ reigns. Death, burial, and resurrection our only hope now and forever. In Christ's name we pray, amen.